0: You are listening to Killer, and this is case number 25, Edward Wayne Edwards. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin.
1: August 10th, 1980, a young couple, age 19 at the time, was reported missing by David Hack, the father of one of the missing, Tim Hack. Tim and his girlfriend Kelly Drew had been out together the night of August 9th. They were last seen leaving a reception at the Concord House Dance Hall in Concord, Wisconsin. The couple had planned to catch up with some friends at Fort Fest following the dance.
0: David Hack found his son's Brown 1977 Oldsmobile Cutlass at the reception hall in the parking lot at around 11 p.m. that evening. He noticed that Tim's wallet containing $67, his checkbook, and his jacket were all still locked away inside. This was around 11 p.m. on August 9th. Days after the pair went missing, searchers found Drew's shredded clothes along a roadway. It took 72 days until finally on October 19th, two squirrel hunters found their remains. The search for Tim Hack and his girlfriend Kelly Drew lasted 72 days in what was described as one of the largest manhunts in the state of Wisconsin.
1: The hunters who found Hack and Drew's remains located them approximately 8 miles from the Concord House, near Cornfield off of Hustaford Road in Exonia, Wisconsin. The bodies were severely decomposed at this point, and medical examiners could only classify their deaths as a homicide, which they say occurred sometime in August 1980. It was found that Tim suffered a sharp wound on his back left side and his right rib area consistent with knife wounds. Drew was believed to have ligature marks on her ankles and wrists and was speculated to have been strangled and sexually assaulted.
0: The community was left reeling. They could not understand how this happened and who would do this. Local gatherings had a sense of uncertainty as many in the community now lived in fear, not knowing who did this. Were they among them? Fast forward 29 years on July thirty-first, two 2009, police arrested 76-year-old Edward Wayne Edwards.
1: who, Who is Ed Edwards? The above discovery of and connection to the 1980 Sweetheart Murders was a shock. But the man who was arrested for their murder, Edward Wayne Edwards, has many skeletons in his closet. And there's so much more to discuss relating to him and how he was arrested. Let's break down the man himself.
0: Edward Wayne Edwards was born in Akron, Ohio on June 14, 1933. Even his date of birth is a controversial topic. According to the National Crime Information Center, Edward used two dates of birth, May 30th, 1928, or June 14th, 1933, as mentioned above. We will get back to this in a moment. According to his own autobiography, Edwards was born Charles Murray, but eventually became an orphan after witnessing his mother, Lillian Cecilia Myers, commit suicide on August 2nd, 1935. She shot herself in the stomach, however, she did not die right away. It would be August 8th before she passed due to septicemia.
1: Following the death of his mother, Edwards is fostered by a couple, Fred and Mary Ethel Edwards. Not long after his adoptions, Mary Ethel passed away. So, in a short time span, Ed's biological and adopted mothers are both deceased. In Edwards' autobiography, Metamorphosis of a Criminal, The True Life Story of Ed Edwards, he would go on to say, In 1937, Mary Ethel, my foster mother, was told that she had multiple sclerosis. After years of suffering from illness and because of my foster father's drinking problem, she thought it best to send me to an orphanage in Parma, Ohio. The year was 1940. I was seven years old, quote. Some sources say Ed's foster parents could not control his behavior and he became too much for them to handle, hence they sent him to the orphanage.
0: During Edward's time at the Parmadale Catholic Orphanage, he was strictly disciplined by the nuns that ran the orphanage. He recalled it to be a terrifying experience and would later blame this combination of circumstances in his life as the reason for him turning to criminal behavior.
1: I wanted to talk about the date of birth discrepancy and the age that he would have been, you know, when he witnessed his mother's suicide. He was, you know, he reported a birth date in his autobiography of June 14th, 1933. I came across some information that suggests maybe it was May 30th, 1928. Ed is a con man, so it's very hard to tell for sure. Um, But the source that I got the secondary birth date from also is kind of interesting, and we'll touch on that uh, likely in a part two of this series. And just for the sake of discussion here, if he witnessed his mother, you know, shoot herself in 1935, that would either make him two or seven
0: Yeah, that's right. And I don't think at two years old, something that traumatic you might remember, but I don't remember anything from when I was two.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I have very, very, very vague memories of things when I was really, really little, but I was probably at least three at the earliest, but most likely not really until four that I actually remember things. So it's hard to say for sure. I mean, either way, like Remembering it or not, you're probably going to be emotionally scarred by that if you witness the entire event go down, and then you shortly after are shuffled off to another family and you know then that woman passed away as well, so it's just really uh a really interesting thing there because it that age makes a huge difference i think on the way that that shapes you know Edwards and the things that would happen to him later
0: i'm I'm leaning a little bit more towards. He witnessed this at the age of seven because he, he's blaming the combination of circumstances in his life for the reason that he turned to criminal behavior. So I find it a little bit more believable that his, you know, his date of birth was, well, 1928 when he was seven years old versus two.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on either direction, but it just was something I found fascinating that, you know, there's even controversy about the day the guy was born, let alone all the stuff that he does. You know, and all the other things that are going on in the rest of the story here. While he was in uh, foster care and, and while he was in the orphanage, he says that he suffered a lot of uh, psychological and physical abuse. And there was an example I came across from his book where he talked about how he was a bedwetter and the nuns did not want anything to do with that. And they would just beat the crap out of him. And just, you know, constantly punish him for wetting the bed, which, you know, a lot of times when you have a child who has a bedwetting problem, there's something more going on. It's either something physical with them or some emotional thing they need to deal with and resorting to beating them is not going to help make that any better.
0: I'm not sure why nuns think that beating on someone ever made a situation better. It seems like a narrative that you hear so many stories around. In the end, what was what was the purpose, and what was there really any discipline? To me, it always sounds like there's more damage done. Yeah, I mean, there was a thought where, like,
1: you know, you hit your kids, and then they stay in line because no one wants to be beaten. It wasn't really, you know, the emotional aspect was never really considered. It was more about the behavioral. Hey, this kid's doing this. If I hit him, he stops, and then we're done. Let's move on to talk about Edwards' juvenile timeline. Edwards would eventually find himself in reform school in Pennsylvania in 1948. By 1950, he returned to Akron, Ohio, and began committing a string of burglaries. He was caught and placed in juvenile detention. Not long after this, he would join the Marines. Being one for dramatic flair, he went AWOL from the Marines, where he was stationed in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Edwards was arrested in Jacksonville and dishonorably discharged.
0: Not longer after his arrest, Edwards continued committing various crimes. Some of them were as petty as forging checks, but he also stole a car and impersonated a Marine. He was arrested for his crimes and sentenced to serve prison time in Chillicothe, Ohio. He was later released, but arrested again not too long after for burglary in Akron. Edwards wrote in his book that he would escape the jail in Akron in 1955 by pushing past a guard and fleeing. He managed to escape the jail and trek across the country, robbing gas stations for money along the way. Edwards also married his first wife in this time frame, Jeanette White. They would later divorce.
1: Edwards would find himself in Portland, Oregon during this time. While there, he committed many crimes and was eventually arrested for those crimes in Montana. He was sentenced to three years in prison and five years probation. Sometime in 1960, he escaped again. Edwards continued his criminal activities, later admitting in his memoir that he did not wear a mask on purpose during the robberies because he wanted to be famous, which landed him on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. While he was in Oregon, he was being questioned for the double murder of a couple, Larry Payton and Beverly Allen. We'll get back to this later, but he was never charged or arrested for it, and later found himself famous as he wanted to be, landing on the FBI's Ten Most Wanted. Over the course of the next year, Edwards would marry a woman named Marlene Harmon.
0: Sticking to the theme, marrying Marlene wasn't simple. There are three separate marriage licenses to Marlene. Edwards would eventually find himself in Atlanta, Georgia where he would be arrested alongside Marlene on January 20th, 1962. He was sentenced to 16 years in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. This is where things get a little interesting. He claims to have met a prison guard here that helped him turn his life around. After being paroled in 1967, he decided to become an inspirational speaker and eventually wrote his memoir, The Metamorphosis of a Criminal, The True Life Story of Ed Edwards, in 1972. During this span of time, he also married his third and final wife, Kay Hederly, on July 20th, 1968. Edwards even appeared on a game show, To Tell the Truth. This is a game show that aired October 17th, 1972. The object of the game is to have a famous panel guess which of the three guests is a former convicted felon. Spoiler, it's Ed. The full clip is around eight minutes. Have a listen.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns,
2: and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at
3: Hero.co. Number one,
2: what is your name, please? My name is Ed Edwards.
4: Number two. My name is Ed Edwards. Number three. My name is Ed Edwards.
2: And here is the extraordinary story of Ed Edwards. I think you'll find it profitable. It says, I, Ed Edwards, was once on the FBI's list of the ten most wanted criminals in America. Now I am a respected citizen in my community. Here's the story of my dramatic turnabout. As a young boy, I felt that the only way I could gain any recognition was to steal. Eventually, I committed armed robberies impersonated a federal officer, and was sought for questioning about a double murder. I spent time in the federal penitentiaries in Leavenworth and Lewisburg. It was at the latter prison that I started vocational training and very slowly began to realize that I could still be somebody and return to my rightful and legal place in society. There is a tremendous need for communication between parents and their children. I stress this point in my book, which is titled Metamorphosis of a Criminal. Signed Ed Edwards.
4: And Gene Rayburn, we'll go down to you for starting. Thank you, Gary. Mm-hmm. Number uh, three, uh, from what uh, Gary just read here, do we infer that you did not have a good relationship with your parents? Uh, this is true. In what way, uh, number three? Uh, in communications, as you indicate? Uh, I
5: was born an illegitimate child, so I never had a, a real mother to speak of. Mm-hmm. Number
4: two, what vocation did you study in prison? Actually, it was for remodeling of houses. And is that your business today, number two? Yes, it is, in addition to writing. Yeah. Number one, what is your business today? My business today is writing and lecturing. Yes. And what vocation did you learn? Is that you? Did you learn writing in, while you were in prison? History. History? You studied history? Yes. History of the world, general history? General history. Yeah. Uh, Number two, uh, in prison parlance, what is a screw? He's a a hack, a bull, he's a a a guard. Number three, in prison parlance, what is a bull? (laughs) No, uh, who is a publisher, uh, number three, of your book? Hart Publishing Company. Who? (laughs) Hart Publishing Company. Uh, That takes us,
2: please, to Kitty.
6: Number one, did you commit these double murders, or were you just wanted for questioning?
5: I was wanted for questioning, but later they found out it wasn't me.
6: And number two, why were you on the 10 most wanted list, then?
4: I guess a lot of the FBI men sat around, took a vote, and I won. (laughs)
6: Number three, what is considered the maximum security prison in America?
4: Uh, uh, Your
5: Leavenworth. Federal Penitentiary.
6: Uh, number one, how did you finally manage to rehabilitate yourself, and how old were you?
4: After I got out of prison.
6: How old were you? Forty-five. Number two, you stayed in prison till you were forty-five years old?
4: No, I wasn't in prison that no long. I was there until I was thirty-six.
6: Oh. And number three, did you get a proper degree from your uh, studies in prison?
4: Yes, I did.
6: Number two, we didn't find out what you studied in prison.
4: Yes, I mentioned before. To a degree, it had to do with building and construction.
6: Oh, and trade. number three, what did you study?
4: Uh, the, uh, hey, the buzzer went.
2: And we're going to go to Allen. Uh, number three, what is a fish? Uh, it's a uh,
5: uh, a new man coming into the institution. Number two, what's a fish? An easy mark. Number one,
4: a new man coming
5: in. Uh, and number number one, are uh, is it common that a prisoner would have uh, tend to have a knife of some kind in prison? No, it's not common, but. There are quite a few around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number three, wh- what was your first uh, term, uh, your prison term? How, how long what was your first sentence, I mean? Uh, my first sentence was uh, in a reformatory for two years. I see. And your, and your second sentence? I uh, was also in a reformatory for uh, two years. I see. How old were you when you uh, got out of prison? Uh, the last time I was released, uh, I was um, about... 32, the, the last time. You were
3: in
4: the- <gasps> and it takes a space to pay. Do we, uh,
3: number two, do reformatories help, try to help kids or are they just in there to do the time and get out?
4: they just there to do the time and get out. Uh, so.
3: uh, number three, who was it in prison? In what prison or did somebody in prison help you to, to get straightened out? I mean, uh, or, was it, or did you do it yourself?
4: Uh,
5: yes, I met a man uh, who was a guard at the uh, penitentiary, and he's the one that... Uh, helped me to rehabilitate.
3: Thank you. Uh, number one, can you make a, a, a good living writing and, uh, and lecturing now? You, you yes, say you I write have been lect-
1: doing very well.
3: Thank you. Um, how many, uh, uh, how old were you when you first went to the can, number one? I mean, the jail.
5: <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was first in a
2: reformatory, but actually in jail, I was 30.
3: Thank you. Number two was. Low-
2: there goes the bell, and that means no more questions. Mark your ballots as you will, without consulting amongst yourselves. The audience and I will take a look at our friends over here at number one, number two, and number three. Has everybody got
4: their ballot marked? No, I haven't got my ballot marked, Gary. Well, that's too bad, because you've got to start. i got to start. i tell you what I'm going to do, Gary. Yep. It's just like the producers of this show to get a young, all-American-looking boy like number three, mm-hmm. with a prison record. The most unlikely looking one up there. <laughs> and that's why I voted for
2: him. righty, and you got a three show, And then we're gonna to go to Kitty.
6: Well, I agree with you, and I think number two is marvelous. Oh. What? I voted for number one.
2: Nice, perfect. <laughs> Nothing wrong with voting for number yeah. one. Nice fellow.
5: Alan? Uh, I found that the number two did not know what a fish is. A fish, in fact, is a new man in prison, but both one and three knew that. However, number three said a guard helped him rehabilitate himself. And number one said he rehabilitated himself once he got out. And that sounds closer to
2: reality to me. So I voted for number one pair of ones and a
5: three
3: and big. Well, number two said it was practically the same thing as a new man, and I think number two looks terrific to be a criminal. He looks so tough. But I always feel, my dear, that it's still, after all, you wouldn't get fooled by somebody like number two, but number three you trust with your life, so I voted for him.
2: <laughs> by a variety of logics, we have arrived at the following conclusion. A pair of twos on each end, the votes are all in. Will the real Ed Edwards please stand up? Is it? Let's find out, Ed, about your friends. Number one, sir, what is your real name, please, and what do you do? My name is Mervyn Spritz. I am the president of
5: the Maryland Council of the Jewish National Fund.
2: And does a great job of playing George Raft, too. That you know, is what he wants to. Number two, please, tell us about yourself.
4: The name is Rick Klein. I'm a self-defense teacher, and I also do stunt work.
2: Yes, sir. <laughs> Ed, there's one important point. You and I were chatting backstage, and I asked you what was the reaction in your neighborhood when you came out of the reformatory the first time. Uh, were, you, were you put down by your... By your your fellow citizens, or do they look up to
5: you? Uh, no. When I was released from the reformatory, uh, they looked up to me, and this uh, motivated me to go on to bigger things. Because this is why I was out there committing the crime was for the recognition.
2: Mm-hmm. And this happens because a lot of thing, people think it's a big shot thing to do, huh? Uh,
5: yes. This is the uh, they f- the more trouble you get into, the uh, bigger you are in their eyes.
2: Well, I want to tell you, you look like a pretty big man from over here. And thank you very much for being with with us, Mr. Edwards, and thank you gentlemen also.
1: It's interesting to hear that clip and listen to the end of it where Ed Edwards is talking about himself and talking about the recognition that he was seeking for his criminal behavior and his criminal past. And Craig, you caught something there at the end that you wanted to bring up that was a very interesting piece of that audio.
0: Yeah. Right there at the end of the clip, he said, I want to move on to bigger things and get more recognition. It's interesting that he thinks that he received recognition from his community when he was released from prison. I don't know that I recall anyone that's ever received praise or recognition for being in prison. It just sounds kind of weird to me. Like it's, it's in a, He's in his own little fantasy land. It almost sounds like
1: This gives you that insight into his mental makeup and how you can tell that he is just like an absolute lunatic. And you can just get that sense of this man just is a little bit off. Now, he sounds very intelligent. He sounds like he's good at, you know, speaking and being persuasive. And he would he sounds like he'd make like an excellent like car salesman or something, you know. And then when you hear the rest of the story, you'll start to understand like there's this this whole twisted side of Ed Edwards,
0: I agree. He did sound very well spoken and he sounds like a con man. I, I think we mentioned that earlier. He was a con man, a drifter. Um, he's had three different marriages. I don't know. I'm assuming that those failed marriages before his third and final marriage, you know, was part of, you know, once those ladies figured out what he was about or what he was capable of, they didn't want anything to do with them.
1: Yeah. And the thing with Ed, and we don't really talk about it much throughout our show, but we can kind of have a loose discussion here. When Ed is with these women and he's, you know, drifting across the country, he's essentially talking them, you know, into doing some of the criminal activities he's doing. You know, he they're, they partake in some of this. They are around him while he's doing it. And he's co- constantly convincing them to join him or be around him while all of this bad, negative stuff is going on. And they still kind of stay by his side. So it's, it's really interesting in that regard that he's able to convince these women to you know, latch on to him as he's moving across the country committing a bunch of crimes and, and burglaries and those kinds of things.
0: A very interesting point for sure.
1: All right, so let's move on and talk about Ed Edwards uh, from the 1980s through the 2000s. Edwards continued speaking and eventually turned to handyman work. The Edwards family moved about the country suddenly and frequently. Ed's daughter April would comment later in life that she oftentimes questioned their sudden moves. The family would wake up some mornings to a U-Haul full of stuff and ready to go, and they'd be on their way to a new city unexpectedly.
0: April Edwards, now April Bellascio, recalls a time her father took her to a large park in Norton, Ohio, called Silver Creek on a warm summer day in 1977. They walked past a nearby pond and onto a paved path. Suddenly he shouted, Here! She always found that moment to be extremely strange.
1: April recalls her father's obsession with serial killers and his habit for cutting out newspaper clippings from local cases in their town. He would even insert himself into investigations. The family was oftentimes whisked away in the middle of the night to a new town or city. For example, they started out in Akron, Ohio, and then on to Doylestown, Ohio, and then Ocala, Florida, Arizona, Colorado, etc. You get the point. Something never sat right with April. Let's fast forward a few decades. Don't worry, we'll go back and fill in the gaps.
0: In terms of the timeline, we're moving forward to 2009. April would have a hard time sleeping and often began recalling all the places that she had lived. She would think of a place they lived and then begin searching for crimes committed in that town or area. She always thought her dad was up to no good. She actually knew he was. He would sometimes shoplift in front of her and her siblings, then deny it. He had already done stints in prison and she was aware of it. He intentionally burnt down their home twice to get insurance money. The second time was on account of the insurance company not declaring the first attempt as a total loss. She knew her dad was evil. One night in May
1: 2009, April came across a news story. The news story was related to the case we covered of the sweetheart murders in Wisconsin at the top of the show. April feverishly began searching the internet about the case. Her memories were coming back, and she would recall listening to her dad talking about that case. He specifically said, I bet they're going to find them in a field. April was only 11 at the time, and once April began digging into the case more, she saw photos of the Concord Hall where Tim and Kelly were last seen. She remembered that place, a place that her father used to work as a handyman. It was near a campground
0: where their family lived for a few months while looking for something more permanent. One evening, Ed returned home. He was muddy and had a bloody nose. April recalled asking him what happened, and he replied he was out hunting. She was only 11, so she didn't think much of it. She did think it was strange to be hunting at that time of year, as she didn't think it was hunting season, but she just let it go. Not long after the murders, April and her family were instructed to quickly pack up and get out of town, something not unusual for her family. After
1: doing a lot of research and soul-searching, April came across a news story with contact information asking for any leads anyone may have regarding the case. April struggled with what to do next, so she reached out to her younger sister Janine. Janine warned April of what she might be getting into. However, the pair both decided it was best for April to make that call and speak to the Jefferson County investigators.
0: April called up the investigator, and she's put right through to Chad Garcia of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. With mixed emotions, she said, You might think I'm crazy, or I might be sending you on a wild goose chase, but I think I might have some information for you. Chad had initial reservations upon taking April's call. The news stories had stopped running over a month ago, and he had received many bad tips up to this point. A woman from Ohio is calling him in Wisconsin. The math just wasn't immediately adding up. And to top it all off, she was reporting her own father for murder.
1: As Chad and April discussed her information about her father over the phone, Chad started looking through his list of suspects tied to the case. Sure enough, her father's name was on that list. He actually spoke to the police during the investigation. Following up with his boss, they both agreed that this is something they should definitely follow up on. Chad has DNA from the crime scene on file.
0: When Edwards was questioned during the investigation, he told investigators that he was in a barn shooting pigeons. He also said he had never been inside the Concord house, nor had he known the people that were there. The pigeon story is just a cover for his nose injury. At the time, two agencies were in charge of investigating the case. They did not cross-examine every detail between agencies at the time. All reporting was done on paper, too, which made it unlikely all information was easily accessible to both investigations.
1: Investigators from Wisconsin went down to a trailer park in Louisville, Kentucky. After about an hour and a half, they convinced Edwards to give a DNA sample. About five weeks later, investigators returned to arrest Edwards. His DNA matched the hack and Drew murder scene. There was semen on some clothing. Edwards had claimed during his interrogation that he had consensual sex with Kelly Drew. He continued to deny involvement in the murders. The last story that he told investigators, and remember, Ed is a con man, is that Tim Hack and two other guys came out of the Concord house and caught him having sex with Kelly. For some reason, the two other guys turn on Tim and beat him to death. Kelly won't stop screaming, so they kill her too, and Edwards said that he would never tell on them because he's not a snitch. The Edwards interview ends with him declaring that he's never killed anyone. That's going to be it this week for part one of the Ed Edwards story, and it only gets more juicy from here. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe.